Hello, and welcome to Cram Machine. I am the operator. Before departure, I must condition you with message from Mr. Luna. He has been at location several days now to prepare you for this journey. He'd had big plans before his arrest. Was only months away from creating the altar, a shrine to behold from an opulent black throne through the yellow contact lenses he'd wear when hunting. A place to remember and be remembered, revered by the underworld. To display the skeletons he'd so diligently liberated from the guck in his barrel. Not an easy task, though he'd never complain about the work, the process. Of course, many had complained about the smell, but in a rundown area like the one he'd chosen to trap his prey, nasty odors were commonplace. He'd been free to pursue his human experiments behind the door of apartment 213, drilling holes in the heads of his comatose captives, injecting hydrochloric acid, boiling water on at least one occasion, with a baster into the matted, blood-ringed opening he'd bore in an effort to create a zombie. A living, breathing, yet thoughtless companion who would never think to leave because they'd been rendered incapable of thought. Something that would always be there when he returned from long shifts at the chocolate factory. Some naked thing, and different and helplessly available. Bumping into walls, defecating on the couch, eating handfuls of dirt from the potted plants. He'd have gladly put up with that odd behavior in exchange for something to come home to. A thing that wouldn't prior demand anything of him and with which he could satisfy himself at will, all without the efforts he'd sloppily employed near the end, while completely wasted. But these trials, these experiments, had all failed. One young man came to life after the drilling procedure and offered a moment's hope, had asked numbly what time it was before lapsing back into a fitful slumber, then eventually escaping the apartment through death, like all the others. Jeffrey Dahmer had found solace in preserving parts of them, consuming pieces on occasion, a practice that warmed his heart with its intimacy, but truly he'd wanted most for them to stay, so he tried his best to keep them. Removing the skeleton from a corpse is a bit like liberating a fossil. Careful, meticulous work. Messy, sure, but certainly worth the effort once the bones have been washed, then treated. When he'd finally been caught, Two actual skeletons were hanging in his closet. Three torsos were processing in a barrel, muriatic acid slowly doing its macabre part, consuming the flesh layer by layer. A shelf was lined with skulls, some perfect and painted, others crumbling from over-bleaching or too much time in the oven. A shame for those who had died, only to have the remains wasted by his clumsiness. Despite what some thought, Dahmer had nothing but the utmost respect for the dead. Well, maybe respect is the wrong word. Fascination is more apt. He had a hard time letting things go, and by his own admission, went a little overboard in his attempts to keep his victims with him. By the time he'd sobered up and had an opportunity to take a good look back at what he'd done, the shrine he dreamed of creating was no longer necessary. He'd done enough to be remembered. More than enough. And once incarcerated, Jeffrey Dahmer found that in the end, what he truly wanted to be forgotten. End of transmission. Welcome to Crime Machine, episode 001. Let's climb aboard, shall we?
Wisconsin. Columbia Correctional Institution. Maximum security. Jeffrey Dahmer, tired of being in segregation, has requested to join the general population at the prison. It's a foolish decision. He knows this. But Jeffrey has always made foolish decisions. It's somewhat typical of his character to this point. All the way back to his school days, when he'd often show up to class drunk, behaving like a complete clown in the pursuit of amusing his classmates. He never could quite figure out how to fit in. So he'd chosen the only other option besides becoming a nobody. He chose to release what he was, rather than contain it. And that, simply put, was weird. As a weirdo, at least it felt like he had some purpose, some use. And he'd been excellent at it, accruing enough of a reputation to have his name used by peers to describe any goof-up or dumbass behavior. Pulling a Dahmer entered the Revere High School lexicon as a phrase to describe anything one did that was ridiculous and brought on laughter in response to its stupidity. Now, in his mid-thirties, and known worldwide as maybe one of the strangest beings to ever be, Dahmer plans on continuing what has worked so long for him. He plays the part. It is clear that the other inmates resent his decision to join them in Genpop. Guards pay him special attention. He's often escorted through the prison, as it's feared one of the other prisoners will kill this notorious inmate for the promise of infamy that seduces nearly all of the murderous lifers. It's a bounty on Dahmer's head that Jeffrey is more than aware of. He secretly hopes that it will be sought out by any one of the mean-looking men who eyeball him relentlessly as he goes through the motions of prison life. He welcomes the idea. Jeffrey Dahmer himself does not believe he deserves to be alive. And when death comes, he's certain that a great relief will as well. Maybe even salvation. In May of 1994, he is baptized in the infirmary whirlpool after confiding to a minister that he yearned for his sins to be washed away. But despite Jeffrey's subdued disposition and penchant for behaving like a moron in exchange for attention, he is too intelligent to believe what he's done can so easily be forgiven, sluiced away. The ghosts of the 17 men that he so rudely strangled to death as they lay helpless, that in some cases stuffed into a barrel of acid after having eaten or preserved parts of them, not to mention having had his way with their mutilated corpses, would never let him rest in life. And if there were anything beyond, he had a suspicion that a dunk in a prison whirlpool was not nearly enough protection against the retribution that they or some other unseen force had in store for him. He could only hope for the lights to cut out on this macabre play that was now his existence. A sad state when a man's highest hope is that he simply disappear into eternal blackness. This is sober and destitute Dahmer's mindset, of course. He likely does not know what the true makeup of his heart of hearts is. The real Jeffrey Dahmer still holds out hope that what drove him to kill will reward him for his earthly acts. The baptism is only half-hearted insurance. He's likely content believing that the end will bring either spoils, salvation, or simply death. He's hedging his bets on the precarious existence he's etched out. It hadn't taken long for an attempt to be made on his life. A Cuban inmate, hoping to be deported after committing a spectacular crime, lunges at Dahmer with a makeshift shank during chapel service. The weapon falls apart, unfortunately, and the guards swoop in. Still, it is a good sign that maybe this will all be over soon, 
and he won't be forced to grow old as a notorious Milwaukee cannibal. As time passes, Jeffrey begins to feel more and more comfortable with his surroundings and dares to embark on a bit of fun. He's observed pushing his horrendous prison meals into shapes that resemble limbs and covering them with ketchup. Behind the backs of guards or oddly behaved, maybe disabled prisoners, he takes to imitating them for laughs. Jeffrey has always been incredibly adept at replicating the stern demeanor of authoritarians or the spasms and loping gaits of the handicapped so he employs this crude skill to endear himself to some of the more lowbrow types that enjoy this kind of thing. It's not long before he has a couple of friends who goad him on like the cowards from his high school had, using Dahmer as a tool for their amusement. Regardless, it's likely kind of nice to revisit that sense of being one of the guys, even if Dahmer will never truly be any one of anything, other than one of a kind, in the worst possible sense, of course. But he is being watched through all this. Well, not so much watched as preyed upon by one of the more unstable and vicious inmates. A young black man who has learned that more than 50% of Dahmer's collage of victims are African Americans. Jeffrey himself would tell anyone who asked that he was not a racist. No, he simply enjoyed the build of many black men and was motivated to kill them only as a means to play with their bodies afterward. Pose them, take photos, treat them as art, Really, morbid as it sounds. Christopher Scarver is the man Dahmer has attracted the dangerous attention of. A man described as unstable, a schizophrenic with a strong belief that God spoke to him, through him. Chris was known to sign his name as Christ on occasion, and anyone who looked into his eyes would know that to question this was a mistake not worth making. Scarver is tall, strong, intimidating as hell. Most other inmates steer clear of him, not because of anything he has yet done, but because of the obvious sense he could do absolutely anything, at any moment. His eyes are a lot like that of a hungry jackal's, and he trains his terrifying stare on Dahmer every chance he gets. Jeffrey Dahmer is a dead man walking under that glare. A glare that had previously set its sight on a supervisor at Christopher Scarver's workplace. After learning he would not be accepted for full-time employment, Scarver had entered the Wisconsin Conservation Corps office from where he'd been hired as a carpenter in training and managed to intimidate a supervisor into handing him some money. Fifteen bucks. This obviously had not been Scarver's satisfaction as he then shot the man in the head. He then demanded a site manager write a check for three grand, and when he hesitated, Scarver shot the supervisor twice more asking the site manager if he thought he was kidding between blasts. Needless to say, Scarver was soon handed a shakily written check and calmly left the scene. Unstable was more than an apt description of this man who now had his focus on Dahmer. Scarver kept a newspaper clipping describing the cannibal's crimes in his prison pocket that he intended to shove in Jeffrey's smug, stupid face just before beating it in. Good behavior on Dahmer's part eventually, ironically, became his undoing. One of the more coveted prison jobs would soon be assigned him, that of basically becoming a janitor for the toilet block. Work that doesn't sound all that appealing, but offered more freedom and time to oneself while quietly scrubbing the sinks, toilets, and floors 
two others would be assigned to this task alongside Dahmer. One, who had become a fan of the quirky, infamous inmate's hijinks at chow time and in the yard, Jesse Anderson, who we will meet now. And the other, a brooding, coiled predator that had made it well known through his rare verbal outburst that he despised Jeffrey Dahmer. Christopher Scarver. Scarver, whether by chance or by design, would soon get his opportunity to make good of the not-so-silent prophecy he had recently become obsessed with fulfilling. Making Jeff Dahmer pay for all that he'd done. Jesse Anderson enjoyed being around the cannibal. Found him amusing. This other man, Scarver, certainly gave him the creeps, though. He didn't like the way that Jackal looked at him and Dahmer as they crossed paths while cleaning the johns. Like they were dinner. A funny thought considering his new pal's past, but there was safety in numbers, and Jesse likely felt that he was relatively safe in the toilet block as Dahmer always seemed to have a guard watching over him. Anderson's reason for being incarcerated likely didn't strike him as the kind of charge that would get one targeted in prison. He hadn't messed with kids, hadn't raped anyone's wife or daughter. He'd simply been in the wrong place at the wrong time, and had been tossed here unjustly after being witness to his own wife's slaughter. At least that was his story, and he was sticking to it. Had he been able to admit to himself the reality of what had happened, maybe he could have prepared more for the possibility of another inmate wanting him dead for the nature of his crime. Jesse Anderson, a white man in his late 30s, was serving a life sentence for the stabbing death of his wife Barbara, an incident that had taken place just a couple of years prior in a Milwaukee parking lot, where, and here's the bit Jesse overlooked as being detrimental to his own prison life, he claimed two young black men had attacked him and Barbara with a knife in a robbery attempt. Anderson later testified that he had fought them off, but not before his wife was stabbed to death in the face half a dozen times and He had taken a few shallow wounds to the chest before wrestling the weapon away. A red-handled folding fishing knife that coincidentally had been purchased at the same sporting goods store where Jeffrey Dahmer had once bought a mallet for bone crushing. Small world. A jury determined that Jesse Anderson had lied about the two young black men and had committed the crime before half-heartedly stabbing himself to prop up his version of events. Christopher Scarver was aware of Anderson's attempt to pin his crime on black youth. This didn't sit well. The toilet block cleaning crew of Jeffrey Dahmer, Jesse Anderson, and Christopher Scarver are left alone to complete their chores on the morning of November the 28th, 1994. It is a windy fall day outside of the prison. Bleak. Scarver grabs a mop and casually dunks it into the dirty water of his pail. It has been three weeks of this easy work with the two races, Dahmer and Anderson. He hasn't been feeling much like killing them lately. Is happy for the time being just to do his work in peace. Anything is better than being out there, constantly assaulted by the shouts and hollers of the animals that make up this strange habitat known as Max, an overpopulated hellhole where it's nuts to butts just about everywhere except in toilet block, the flood of vermin being controlled somewhat here. Today is unusually lax, however. Scarver has noticed that the cannibal's personal security is nowhere in sight. Not that he's complaining, shit. It's just odd. Thanksgiving just passed, so perhaps everyone's a little slow to recover from that turkey and sweet potato pie. 
He methodically begins to swipe the floor with a tool that so reminds him of the basting mop used in Thanksgiving's past. Out there, somewhere, before he'd gone crazy. Crazy is what they call him. Schizoid. Something. These days, anyone acted on impulse is deemed as such. Not his fault the world went soft. He'd have been a hero. A man of action in some other place. Some other time. He has a son. Scarver does. And he worries for him. We'll make it right down the line for the little man. But until then, he's day to day in this madhouse. Moment to moment. And this one. This moment. At the moment. Ain't half bad. A tap on his shoulder. Scarver spins around and to his disbelief is greeted by two snickering grown men. Dahmer and Anderson. Both not making eye contact. Both thinking that Scarver is easy pickings for some fun since the guards aren't around. Scarver swears at them, holds his mop like an impotent pitchfork, and the two scurry away. It's hard to believe, but there really doesn't seem to be any officers around. Scarver wasn't intending on today being significant, was he? Okay, maybe he was. Maybe he had that clipping of Dahmer's crimes in his pocket. Maybe he hadn't even been tapped on the shoulder just now. Maybe, just maybe this whole thing was a setup. A way to rid the prison of this high-profile pain-in-the-ass inmate Jeffrey Dahmer, who by his own admission didn't care if he lived or died, and who had caused all kinds of disruption just by being in Gen Pop, not to mention the hijinks. Besides the imitations and playing with his food, Dahmer had once painted his face with blue marker and requested cyanide pills from the prison store. Cocky behavior. He was getting too comfortable, had recently fashioned phony eyeballs from two plastic spoons with the handles broken off, and walked around much like one of the blank-faced zombies he'd endeavored to create for himself. Jeffrey was suspected of posting a typewritten note on the inmate bulletin board, inviting prospective members to join Cannibals Anonymous. Dahmer was asking for it, from the guards as well as some inmates. And today, whether he just tapped Chris, a.k.a. Christ Scarver, on the shoulder or not, he was going to get it. Nobody is watching Scarver. The half dozen or so inmates lifting weights seem to look away, in fact, when he creeps in and grabs a five-pound metal weight bar from the gym and slips it into his trousers. He's soon back to toilet block and then outside of the staff bathroom for an adjoining basketball court. Dahmer is cleaning beyond that door. Jesse Anderson is a couple doors down in the staff showers. It's an easy decision to do Dahmer first. Anderson will be icing on the cake if Scarver can reach him before an alarm sounds. Dahmer looks up as the door opens, then freezes when he sees the Scarver and sees what he has in his hand. A weapon eerily similar to the one Jeffrey had used on his first victim. That weapon having been a 10-pound barbell. Scarver pulls a newspaper article from his pocket and asks Dahmer if it's true. Did he really do these things? Eat the hearts of men? cut off and preserve their penises, masturbate to decapitated heads. Jeffrey Dahmer can likely see there is no explanation here that will save him. And besides, he wants to die. Doesn't he? Feels that the fact he's alive is an affront to God, has looked forward to death since his arrest. If that's so, then why does he break for the door? Scarver brings the metal bar crashing down on Dahmer's skull. Once, and then again, as the Milwaukee monster falls. There is blood, a lot of it. 
Scarver finds it a little eerie that Dahmer doesn't yell out, doesn't make a sound before or during the attack. He sure is making a racket now, however, as he gurgles and spasms on the concrete floor. Scarver grabs Dahmer by the head and smashes it a few times into the ground for good measure, then exits to take care of Jesse Anderson. It's easy work. Anderson goes down much the same way Dahmer did. He's destined to exist in a fog for a couple days before his life support is cut. The victim of a savage bludgeoning. Scarver heads back to his cell, covered in blood, grinning and muttering to himself, certain he can hear the voice of God congratulating him for having killed honorably this time around. It's not long before a guard discovers the two dying men and they are brought to hospital in something that resembles a rush. For an hour after the attack, Dahmer will wait in limbo to see what will become of him, much like the helpless men whom he had drugged and played God with. It's likely a terrifying place to be, stuck in your subconsciousness, disconnected and idly wondering if you'll ever be allowed to re-enter your life. Dahmer, like his 17 victims, is not. He dies at 9.11 a.m. and either drops into an empty black pit where he's forgotten forever, or is secured in an opulent black throne, much like the one he planned on placing in front of his despicable altar, where he'll be forever revered in the underworld. But maybe, just maybe, he is placed before an ultimate judge, one who will not hand him his salvation as a result of being dunked in a prison whirlpool, one who will look into Jeffrey Dahmer's heart and decide what truly lies there. Crime Machine is a new breed of true crime podcast researched, written, and narrated by Jack Luna and produced by me, The Operator. I hope you enjoyed the ride. If so, rate and review us. Follow us. Thanks to sponsors, etc., etc. Beep, beep, boop, music extra. Roll it. Jimmy, 